Good morning, everyone. I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Ben, and a special welcome to all of our guests. When you came in, you had to move some papers to sit down. This thing that was on your seat is called a Connect card, and we use it to connect with people. And if you have a prayer request or something you want to tell us, you can just write that down. If you're our guest, if you'll give us your name and home address, we'll send you a certificate for some free Chick-fil-A food. It's our way of saying thanks for being with us. And if you're a regular attender, would you put your name and email address on there? Make sure we can read it. If you have new data, check the box, put it on the back for us. And we'll use this card later in the service to take some steps as we continue week three of our You, Me, and Us message series. Now, I wasn't here last week, but I was here with you in spirit. In fact, I was uh, on a boat uh, with my wife and kids and some extended family members, and we were celebrating her uh, 29th birthday. We've had that one a few times. And uh, we, had, we had just a great time. But let me tell you one of, the, one of the greatest joys for me was, is not only was I able to connect with my family, but I was able to leave my church family knowing that I left you in great hands. Uh, you have an amazing staff here. The team that leads this church is incredible, and I just think it would be remiss without me saying very publicly how impressed I was with Pastor Will's message last Sunday. He, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's okay. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I get a chance to set the calendar for preaching around here, so I thought the week before I'd left, uh, I would take the easy passage, and I did. And I left him the harder passage, which he called the S word. If you weren't here for that, you want to listen to that message because it was phenomenal. And he unpacked a, a, a passage that can be emotionally disturbing. It's like when you're reading the Bible, you hit that passage and it's like a speed bump. And I thought he unpacked it beautifully, uh, incredibly well, and just with the amount of humility and boldness that I couldn't be more proud of. And then I got to be here yesterday, sitting in this room with 70 other people, uh, couples who um, call Four Corners Church home. And we got to hear from Pastor Melissa and Pastor Joseph uh, as they talked to us uh, about strengthening and growing in our marriages. And again, I was just blown away at the caliber and the, the raw quality of the presentation. If you weren't here for that, I hope you had a good excuse, because if not, you just missed it. And I got to sit literally like right there with my wife, and we were able to take our break time and talk through issues together, and it was just so encouraging to be built into. We believe in families around here. It's part of our mission. Uh, we believe that God's called us uniquely to minister to families in this area. And I never have seen us go more directly at our mission than yesterday in this place. And so major kudos to those folks as, as well. But you're here today for the third week of our message series, and I'm really excited to jump into that with you. So if you want to grab out your message notes, they look like this. You can open them up and you can follow along with me uh, on the inside. And while you're doing that, you also notice the program called Life at, at 4C on your, on your uh, seat when you came in. You're welcome to thumb through that while I'm talking if you find this uh, not fully engaging or whatever. And you're going to find in there some small group information. And I'm going to tell you how to take advantage of that uh, a little bit later on. All right? So today, I want to talk with you about physical intimacy. Uh, this is not a subject that we have shied away from at our church uh, it's one of those things that because God has blessed us with a lot of families, uh, I know that it's a subject that is of importance to our congregation. When I have a chance to sit down with men and women who are married, men and women who are about to be married, one of the subjects that comes up very, very often is physical intimacy. And there's two places that I think are the best places to talk about this, but believe it or not, 
Even in these two best places, it doesn't get talked about a whole lot. So on your message notes, the first couple blanks, the first one is at home. We should talk about this subject at home, and we should also talk about it at church. We should talk about it at home, and we should talk about it at church. But if you look at the statistics, the truth is, is most people don't learn about physical intimacy at home or at church. They don't. Uh, They learn about it on the school bus. Uh, They learn about it on the walls at the Exxon gas station. Uh, They learn about it from their best friend, you know, at some lunch table or in a locker room somewhere. Uh, They learn about it now, but days on the internet. You think they're watching Dora the Explorer, and they're not. They're watching, I know that I went really young on that, just to startle those with toddlers. But you can learn about this at all kinds of places, but I think the two best places to talk about it is at home, where the values of a mom and a dad thoughtfully considered Understanding the uniqueness of that particular kid can be explored. And they can talk about the values that they have and not just the biology of the event, but what's really going on there. And what does God have to say about it? And the wisdom that comes with age, sometimes even some mistakes, can be brought into that conversation in a way that gives lift and equips a child, a young man or a young woman, to live life with information that's more helpful than maybe they were given, uh, the parents were given as a child. But the other place to talk about this is church. I don't know if you know it or not, but this whole subject was God's idea. It really was. Uh, It's not like God created a, a human man and a human woman and put them in the garden, and then when God turned his back, somehow the enemy ran in there and attached certain body appendages and said, let's see how this messes things up. That's not what happened. Not at all. No, from the beginning, this is the way God designed it, and all the beauty that he intended for that subject is a part of his master plan. And when homes and churches avoid this subject, what happens is, is the enemy of our soul has an open door. It's like somebody left the gate open, has an open door to run into the playground and create havoc in what should be Safe, safely maintained within its boundaries gets turned upside down and twisted and what was meant to be waited for gets rushed and what was meant to be rushed gets waited for and it gets all kinds of crazy in there. And so over the years, we've regularly talked about it. Now, I won't be going quite as in-depth as I have in other times, but if you do have a middle school or younger child in the room right now, if you're not ready for this conversation, I've tried to give you about a five-minute window without saying anything all that too stunning, all right? Uh, But there might be one or two things that we're going to talk about in a minute, but I want to take you to a place in Genesis chapter 1 where the Bible gives us the beginning of our subject, all right? So Genesis chapter 1 on the screen in your message notes, you can follow along. The Bible says this, and God blessed them. That's the man and the woman. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, when theologians get together and they study the Bible, they refer to this passage as the cultural mandate. There are a lot of big statements in the Bible that if you tease them out, have huge implications. This is one of them. On the surface, it just sounds descriptive. 
There's a man and a woman. God says, be fruitful and multiply, and I'm going to give you dominion as a word, or management, or stewardship over all the world. You're the pinnacle of creation, and I'm going to ask you to manage it and steward it. But in that cultural mandate, there's the command to be fruitful and multiply. God had made trees and trees after their kind to produce after their kind and flowers to produce after their kind and animals to produce after their kind. And he looked in a similar way at the man and the woman and he said, I want you to produce after your kind. And all the biology that went into that creation that he did and Still happens today. That was God's original design. And he wanted the earth to be filled with people who would go about his good work in the world. That somehow, God who is love in that act of creating would have an object to love. So part of our subject today flows out of the very heart of God and the original design that he had for us. And it's a beautiful thing and It's a wonderful thing, and yet it's a dangerous thing. It's been cold around here lately, and uh, I I grew up in inner city Chicago for a while, and when we moved to Tennessee, the weather was much warmer. So now here I am kind of halfway between Tennessee and Chicago, living in Cincinnati, and I'm just not quite acclimated, even after over 20 years, uh, to the weather here. I get very, very cold, so at our house, almost every day that the temperature is below 50, we build a fire. We do. I just, I like a fire, right? And so I buy firewood. Sometimes we get out there and chop it ourselves, and we put a a fire in the fireplace. And one of my favorite things to do, I did it just the other night, is we built a fire, and the fire is crackling and popping, and turn the lights down so the glow of the fire kind of fills the room, and it's very warm uh, in terms of temperature, and it's very warm in terms of color, and it just sets a great mood, and there's the popping and all that. A fire, for me, is very beautiful, as long as it stays in the fireplace. One day when Jill and I were dating back in Tennessee, we had a fireplace in our home, and I thought it'd be a really romantic thing to build a fire. There's a theme here. I like fire, all right? I do. You probably want to keep your matches away from me, that kind of thing. And so I built a fire, and we're sitting there kind of chatting in front of the fireplace, and all of a sudden, one of the logs that I had carefully stacked rolled right out of the fireplace, right onto the carpet, and it was on fire. And there was no more romance at that point in the dating. I was now in panic mode, and I very quickly was able to get the log, pick it up. We had the fireplace tools there, but it left singe marks on the carpet. So I did my best to clean it up, grabbed a throw rug from somewhere else in the house, put it in front of him, and prayed that my mom and dad would not see it for days. That, you know, somehow I'd be able to get back. Well, the fire's beautiful until it's out of the fireplace. That's what this subject is for us. Most of us in the room are either married or have been married or maybe perhaps would like to be married. Maybe that's not everybody, but a good portion of us here. Almost all of us in the room are a direct product of the very thing we're talking about. Almost all of us. Some of us, I'm not sure, but almost all of us. So we have a very personal reason. And I want to give you now a handful of statements to help make sure that this thing stays in the fireplace and specifically... I want to talk to married people. Now, Joseph and Melissa did a great job yesterday, and I don't have time to recreate all the conversation that went into all that they did, but I want to narrow our focus here. 
Sometimes when I talk from the stage, I feel like I have a shotgun and we're just going to go broad. But today, we need to narrow a little bit. I want to take you to a passage that has been used and sometimes overused, sometimes underused. I want to take you to a handful of places in the scripture that talk about our subject. But primarily, I'm focusing today on husbands and wives. And if you're about to be married, right? I want to focus on husbands. And I want, to, I want to challenge folks also who are below 30 years old because you're going to hear some things that maybe you've heard before in church, but they're very countercultural. They're not the way the world typically works with this subject. I want to give you a, a, a plan for a blueprint of what God originally had in mind when it comes to the intimacy that he wanted you to enjoy and participate with and experience satisfaction with. And believe it or not, the subject we're talking about today is very spiritual. Not just because when it goes wrong, it does damage in a person's heart and they need some spiritual help to get back. That is the far back end of our conversation. The truth is it's very spiritual because this act of physical intimacy touches our very soul. It leaves deep impressions in our hearts. That's why with the recent news media coverage and all the Me Too movement and all the stuff we've been hearing about the, the underside of our culture, and that's why all that stuff is so potent to talk about and emotional. Because when this subject touches your life, you don't forget it. And some of us have had the subject forced upon us. If that's you today, man, I'm just... I'm so sorry that happened to you. Others of us jumped into the deep in the pool thinking we were ready and we weren't ready. And again, I'm really sorry if that was your experience. But very few of us walked fully equipped and aware of the weightiness of this subject into the arena of engagement. But that doesn't mean that this can't be a enjoyable and fun and satisfying and spiritually enriching part of your life, it can be. Here's the beautiful thing about God. God is the God of second and third and fifth and 15th and 100th chances. And he heals and restores. And he has a marvelous way of taking a checkered and, and, and spotted past and redeeming it and making something very beautiful out of it. All around you in this room, on this subject and in other subjects of life, people have checkered and spotted pasts. And God has redeemed and he gave them grace that's not only going to get them to heaven, they're going to go to heaven. But not only are they going to go to heaven, he's redeeming and making beautiful the broken and the ugly parts of their lives even now. When I thought about this message and what I really wanted for you, I had two big goals. One is, is that, not that you would learn something, but that you would have clarity about God's heart for you on this subject. That you'd get clear. And the other thing would be that if the enemy has done any harm in your life on this subject, if there's been any havoc on the playground of your life when it comes to this subject, that you would not only have clarity, but you'd experience some healing today. That your vision would be corrected. Your heart would be softened. Your mind would be energized and your imagination would be sparked for you the beautiful things that God wants, not just the ugly things that are offered as the counterfeit. 
And if you're married today, if I had a third goal, my hope would be that this part of your married life would be energizing for you. And I know that I kind of walk a tightrope today because there is a lot of pain in the room. There's a lot of pain and regret in the room. And already the enemy is doing his work right now trying to bring shame to the minds of several of our brothers and sisters here and if they're watching online in the same way. And that's a trick meant to keep you from learning and growing and stepping into the very life of beauty and joy and satisfaction that God has for you. So let's narrow just a little bit. If you're married, if you're single, how do you understand and know and practice this fire in the fireplace, in its safe place, in a way that brings warmth and gives a glow, energizes the space? How do you do that? Well, let's look at a few principles, all right? Number one. Number one, the first blank there is align with Scripture. We're in the middle of a building process here, and things are going so well. Uh, Concrete got poured this week. All the holes are filled up. It looked like we were putting in a big uh, uh, lap pool or maybe a a baptismal pool, you know, 50 Olympic size. I don't know, but it, it was just a big hole in the ground. But we got that filled with concrete, and the electricians are coming this week, and the rest of the walls are going up. But every time somebody comes in, you know what they do? You know what every contractor wants to see? They want to see the blueprints. So on a table there in the workspace, the big blueprints are laid out. And we have big copies of the blueprints, which are quite expensive to print. We have smaller ones that we can use for reference. But everybody that comes in to do a job, they want to see the big ones. They want to be able to see it clearly. They want to be able to look at the reference points to know where their work is to be in relationship to the other. They keep going back to the blueprints. And that's really what we have to do with this subject. We have to go back to what God originally designed. That idea that it was for a man and a woman in a covenant of marriage. A covenant of marriage. And this is the countercultural part of our conversation. A modern theologian that I like to read because his heroes are similar to my heroes and he writes about my heroes a lot, but he's a teacher at Boston College, and his name is Peter Kreeft, and he says this. He says, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, most of our American culture doesn't struggle with most of the Ten Commandments. The first four, they dismiss as irrelevant anyway, because how do you even talk about a God you can't see? The first four Ten Commandments are all about a God you can't see, and the the last six of the Ten Commandments are really about the way we interact with each other, and he says, most everybody agrees with all of them. And we don't really think much about them until you come to the one that says, don't commit adultery. And he says, that one begins to meddle into people's lives. And if not them personally, somebody they care deeply about. And it either conjures up images of pain or images of people who don't quite fit the commandment. And he says, that one commandment has caused all kinds of disconnect spiritually for people. Sometimes the way churches have talked about that subject and our subject today has caused major disconnect for people. But the truth is, is that God designed this subject to be a sacred experience between a man and a woman in a covenant of marriage. 
And covenant's a special word. Covenant is a, a word that goes beyond a contract. In a contract, you and I have shared values. We come to a similar place on a piece of paper, and you have obligations, and I have obligations, and you keep yours, and I keep mine. But if you break yours, the contract gets broken. It can be null and void, or I might have an exit clause built in because of your refusal to contractually abide by your agreements. That's a contract. And many marriages operate like a contract. But the original design was a covenant that's much more stable and in God's mind, more permanent. One that's built not on what you do alone, although there are expectations, but it's built on a commitment that goes beyond behavior. So that when I don't act the way I should act, the covenant remains. Now you can break a covenant. They're harder to break than a contract. The Bible talks about it. And when a covenant is broken and you've brought the expectation of a covenant and that gets broken, the pain that results is enormous. That leads God at one point in Malachi to say in Malachi, uh, the prophet, the last book of the Old Testament, that God hates divorce. It's not that he hates divorced people. He hates the pain that that covenant broken produces in the life of people who stood before him and made promises without one hope. They didn't have a single hope that they were going to ever look at each other and say, this thing is over. Everything they aspired to was for a long-term, lifelong, mutually edifying and building up relationship. And when God sees that kind of relationship break, that covenant break, it breaks his heart. He hates it because he loves us and he doesn't like the pain it brings. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes letters to churches filled with married people and single people. And he finds himself often, often kind of meddling into life. He gets off of pure theology and pure church governance and pure talking about Jesus, it seems. And he gets into meddling into the affairs of Christians' lives. So last week, Pastor Will showed you how Paul did that in Ephesians chapter 5. Today, I want to share you how he does it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's what Paul says as it relates to the covenant of marriage. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, I'm not the greatest motivator in the world. I'm not a psychologist. I tend to play one on occasion. Um, I have to be sometimes to my kids a psychologist and try to understand them. But if I were writing this passage, I probably would have chosen a different word than duty. When it comes to this subject the idea that it's a duty doesn't really speak into the beauty and the majesty and the joy that this subject's supposed to bring to the person who's reading the passage. There's a reason that Paul writes to married people and he says, look, there's a certain obligation you have to one another. Now, it's not to everybody. Pay attention to what he says. The husband has to fulfill his duty to his wife. So it's not all women to all men or all men to all women or all wives to all husbands. It's one man, one woman, and their responsibilities for each other. And I think that when I think deeply about this passage, there might be a reason why the word duty is used. 
Because I think there's an emphasis on responsibility here that brings freedom. You know this conversation, don't you? It's one that if you've had teenage kids, you maybe have had before. It goes something like this. I know you want more freedom. I know you're tired of the rules. So if you really want more freedom, act more responsibly. Act more responsibly. And when I see you acting more responsibly, I can relax the rules a little bit. And maybe if that wasn't you or your kid or your parents didn't do that to you, maybe there's a kid that you'd like to say that to. You, know, you really don't deserve the freedom you're giving because you're not acting very responsibly. And so I think Paul's trying to do with this passage that we're going to unpack for a few minutes to say, look, this fire that brings warmth and beauty and joy, there's a responsibility in that thing because it's potent. And if there was ever something that had so much potential for good, this is it. And if there was ever something that had so much potential for harm, this is it. So husbands and wives, listen, listen. You guys have a responsibility to one another. Now we could take like seven weeks and unpack the responsibility that we owe one another. And Will talked about it a little bit last week when he said that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives should remember that means submitting in respect to their husbands. And husbands should remember that means giving away your wife as Christ gave, uh, giving away your life to your wife as Christ gave away his life to the church. I mean, incredibly powerful expectations. Well, why would anybody run towards duty? Why would anybody run towards obligation? Why would anybody run towards work? Well, because there's an amazing payoff. There's an amazing payoff that comes when we pay attention to the things that really matter. So the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and also uh, the, the wife to her husband. And then here's some rationale he gives. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this is one of those passages that when I first got married, I was eager to remind my wife of. Um, we came in with different expectations. She got ready for the wedding day. I was eager for the wedding night. Completely different schedules, right? And so as you know, a young man trying to do the right thing, and this was a passage that was important to me, and I tried to stress its importance that's a really immature and unhelpful approach to this passage. This passage is better understood if you're a man as the obligation you have, not the obligation that your spouse has. And it's better understood if you're a wife as the obligation you have, not the obligation that your husband has. But it reminds each that you're committed to one another. It's just another way of Paul saying, submit to one another. That there's a way you can serve each other here that brings out the best in both of you. But you might have to step up to the plate with a little bit of maturity into the subject. Valuing the responsibility side of the freedom coin more than the freedom side of the freedom coin. If you really want the warmth, the vitality, and the joy, and the glow that comes from this subject, you might have to read a passage like this, not asking what it means for somebody else, your spouse, but what does it mean for you? What does it mean for me, for me to read the passage that I have a duty to my wife and she should be finding quiet moments to ask herself, what does it mean that she has a duty to me? What, is, what are the implications of that subject? 
Why is there an emphasis on responsibility? Let me just ask you, those of you that are married, maybe you're contemplating getting married. When's the last time you thought deeply for like an extended period of time, not more than, you know, not, not just 30 seconds or a minute, you thought deeply about what does it mean for you to be a person who is mature in your understanding of physical intimacy in your relationship, for you to be mature, for you to take it seriously as if it is a fire roaring in the fireplace. That is awesome to warm yourself from, but you don't want the logs rolling out onto the carpet. When's the last time you've thought about how you are doing on this subject and is your thought and the behavior out of it identified by the word mature? Or are there other words that should be applied that would be a more accurate description of your understanding? So if we really want to like keep the fire in the fireplace and keep it roaring, we're going to have to like wrestle with these passages. Wrestle with what does it mean to submit and respect your husband and to give your life away for your wife. You've got to wrestle with that. They can't be passages you throw around in an argument or you whisper in a prayer and you let it go. These are things you wrestle with deeply. And the payoff of that kind of wrestling is it's a fire that warms on a cold night and it heals and it restores. You can cook over it. You can purify metal over a hot enough fire. It can do wonderful things, but it has to be tended, cared for, and stoked, measured. And There aren't enough places in our culture where you're encouraged to stop and contemplate this subject because everywhere else in our culture is trying to sell you something. And if they can turn you on, they can get you to turn your wallets out. That's why we use scantily clad women to sell automobiles. They don't go faster when beautiful women are in an advertisement. They don't get you from point A to point B more efficiently. But the appeal of that thing, and the enemy wants to just run through your life with this subject, and he doesn't want you to stop and go, what do I need to do? He'd much rather you go, what does she need to do? What does he need to do? But you'll get much more traction asking what do I need to do? Let me give you the second one. I think sometimes you have to adjust to different drives. To husbands, I'd say this. Slow down. Slow down. Now, not every woman needs this. Not every wife needs this. There are certain seasons in some women's lives and some women just have a different pace. But for the most part, men are ready to engage the fire just about any time, day or night. You're pyromaniacs with matches and other things, right? And so sometimes men just need to slow down because there's a difference. There's a kind of a pink way of viewing life and a blue way of viewing life, a pink way of viewing our subject today and a blue way. And in general, men, you'll get more mileage if you slow down a little bit. You know, doing things too fast um, can be impressive on occasion. But sometimes you don't get all that you want out of that. Long before my family had a charcoal, 
or long before we had a, a, a gas, a propane um, grill, we had a charcoal grill. You guys remember that, right? Some of you, some of you still use charcoal. And, uh, you know, sometimes it was hard to light the charcoal. So I learned this as a kid as I was getting ready to barbecue with the family. You just grab the charcoal lighter and you squirt. And you know the rule here. If a little bit's good, a lot is better. In fact, if a lot is better, the whole bottle might be best. So you just squirt. Let it soak in. Squirt. Let it soak in. Oh, there's a little bit left. Fill it up. And you know what happens when you light that sucker, don't you? My eyebrows just grew back last week. It's, right? That's impressive. I was in awe. Right? It wasn't really what we wanted, though. You know, the neighbors are looking out the window. Moms are holding their babies. Kids are screaming. Not quite what you want. What you want is an appropriate amount of engagement. And so men... Slow down. And for the women, on occasion, do a few sprints. On occasion, speed up. Now, when it comes to this subject in marriage, even the passage that we've used, again, it's not about what do they need to do. It's about what do you need to do. If you really want to stoke this fire in your marriage and you want it to be good and you want to submit to one another on this subject, what's the part you need to do? Slowing down, perhaps, being more sensitive. Speeding up, being more sensitive. A few years ago, I read a book by a guy named William Harley, and he's a famous Christian psychologist, and he talked about that for a lot of us men, our, our desire for physical intimacy is just huge, and especially if you're younger. And it's true for women as well, and I think in our age, women are discovering that even more, and I think some of that's a very healthy thing. And he says that if you could imagine, uh, for a lot of ladies, this might be a decent metaphor. Imagine that um, there's a wife and she's immobilized. She's in a hospital bed and uh, she's immobilized and um, she is thirsty and she can't reach over and grab the, the water. So she looks to her husband who's there and the only person in the room that can help her. And she says, I'm thirsty and I'd like a drink of water. Just imagine that scenario. And he's going to use this as a metaphor for the different uh, desires and the different paces. Imagine then if the husband were to look at her and say, you know, I don't really feel like getting you a glass of water. I'm not really in the mood, maybe in a couple of hours. So the hours roll by, and one more time the wife turns to the husband and says, honey, I'm getting thirsty. It's really been a while since I've had a good drink. And... Uh, would you please uh, get me a glass of water? And the husband re responds and says, you know, I'm really kind of tired and I've had a, a long day, okay? Keeps it up, you know, ends with a positive. And so then the wife, if she's really thirsty, a couple things begin to happen inside of her. Her desire grows, it doesn't wane, and she might even begin to feel a certain amount of emotion negatively, a little anger, a little frustration. Feels the temperature rising, she really wants a drink, and perhaps she turns up the heat and begins to demand, I, I want a glass of water, you're the only one that can give me a glass of water. So the husband looks at his wife and spins on his heels and says, well, you're not going to get any water if you talk to me with that kind of an attitude. So the husband returns to the scene about a day later, and now the wife is livid and frustrated and very, very thirsty. 
So the husband finally says to her, okay, here's your water. Mm, just drink it. Just drink it if you're really that thirsty. So now, maybe she gulps it down, maybe she doesn't. But even if she does, he writes, do you think she's really satisfied? Do you think it really quenches all the thirst? She's thinking that if she ever decides to express she's thirsty again, she's going to think twice about that. And that's the way it is a lot of times with different sex drives. It's the first time I've used that word, if you're noticing. Different sex drives in a marriage. But what you don't understand is that God has designed this thing, and some of you are wired this way. Often it's men more than women, but not always. That this physical connection satisfies physically and emotionally and spiritually and psychologically. And when it's not present and it's a natural thing to want, and you're looking at a person that can be present with you in that desire, it's really easy to build up resentments. And I just want to say this. Resentment is the destroyer of marriage. I don't know what your problems in your marriage are right now, but your problems are not your problem. You'll be able to survive almost every one of your problems in your marriage, no matter what they are until somebody gets resentful. And when resentment has crept into the life of a marriage, it's a five-alarm fire. I mean, it's time to pull the fire alarm and pull out the fire extinguishers and call the fire department. And I've seen no other subject in marriage cause resentment more quickly than this one. And that's why Paul, when he writes about it, writes about it with such amount of sobriety. He says, look, it's supposed to be fun and enjoyable, but you got to be responsible and think deeply about your role in this subject. Number, uh, no, just before we get to number three, I have the, the Ephesians 5 passage there again. Where I want to remind you one more time as you talk about this, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then number three, I think if you really want physical intimacy to grow, then I think you have to protect your vision of intimacy. Your vision of intimacy. How do you see it? Now, when it comes to the way we talk about it in English and in our Western understanding, we've really narrowed our understanding of this very broad subject. But in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and in the Greek Bible, the New Testament... There are multiple words to talk about the loving relationship between a husband and a wife. I want to give you three of them real quick. We could spend a lot of time on this. But just I want to touch the subject on the depth and the breadth of this vision that God has for your relationship and the vision that he has for your physical intimacy in your relationship. The first word, if you want to write it down, is the Hebrew word. We're going to transliterate it, raya, raya. Raya is a Hebrew word that's often translated in your Bible as love. And it specifically refers to a friendship kind of love. When a husband and a wife are thinking about what makes marriage special, the Bible indicates that there should be a certain amount of friendship and companionship happening in that relationship. Shared experiences, shared dreams, laughter and joy. 
This is what happens when you watch the other person's favorite TV show and you sit there and you get a kick out of watching them engage their show. You laugh along with them or you play their favorite game or you go to their favorite restaurant because you just enjoy watching your friend enjoy life. There's another Hebrew word, though, that talks about another aspect of this connection between a husband and a wife. It's the Hebrew word ahava. I just think that's a beautiful word. Ahava. And it's more than friendship. It's commitment. Friendship works as long as it's working. But ahava says, even when you're no longer cute to me, and even when you're no longer just, you know, that special little thing that I'm smitten by, and I actually begin to see you more as you really are, a whole person with good and bad, even then I'm committed to you. When I see the darker side of who you are, I'm not running away. My favorite Ahava verse in the Bible. There was a character in the Old Testament that wanted to marry uh, this beautiful woman, but the father of the woman said, you're going to have to work for me. And he ended up working seven years for the father-in-law of this girl he wanted to marry. It's a long time. But here's what the Bible says about it. And Jacob worked for Laban for seven years for his wife, but it seemed like days for him. Seven years seemed like days. That's ahava, commitment, commitment. And so friendship's awesome, but commitment takes you deeper. But there's even another type of physical intimacy described in the Bible, and it's the word dod, D-O-D. It's the kind of word that would be scribbled on the outhouses of the ancient Hebrew people. And little boys would talk about dod, you know, when their sisters and moms weren't around. And somebody would say, you're never going to believe what I learned. And dod is that physical intimacy. In the Bible, friendship and commitment and physical intimacy were all meant to be a part of the thing. And when that happens, you can begin to protect your vision of the intimacy. The vision of the intimacy, what do you want out of this relationship? And for it to be complete, the picture is there's friendship and commitment as well as physical connection. Now, the next few are not complicated. We won't spend a lot of time on them, but I want to give you some just practical advice here. Number four, for every no offered when physical intimacy is desired, here's just a little technique. Set an appointment. Set an appointment. No is not just no, but it's no, not tonight, but I'll make sure we take care of that in the morning. Or I really don't feel well. I'm not just putting you off. Do you mind if we connect like this the next day? Or I'm not into it right now, but I promise you, come Friday night, you'll be my priority. And this is one of the ways I think very practically men and women can serve each other. And we want marriages in our church to be healthy and strong. And when the Apostle Paul wanted that for his church... In Corinth, here's what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, look, if you want to think deeply about this and you want to get past just the raw emotions of it, you want to think about what you really want, stop depriving one another. 
except for an agreed amount of time. And then if you're going to separate for an agreed amount of time, do it so that you can devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan won't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. If you really want a deep, dode, ahava, and ra'ah kind of marriage, you you can't neglect this forever. And if you do, you should be praying. And I want to let you know that if you're doing that for a long time, one of the spouses is praying for you to stop doing it. And to go ahead and remember how important this is supposed to be. Number five. If you really want to do well at this, I think you can keep kids in their place. You know the acronym for kids, right? Keeping intimacy at a distance successfully. That's what kids are. Keeping intimacy at a distance successfully. Jill and I are about to be empty nesters. I plan on rediscovering the moon. Long strolls at night. You know? I don't know what you need to do, but in our house, what we've had to learn is set a regular date night where we spend time on our friendship. We remind each other we're committed. And often, there's a little bit of dode that happens. Number six, do you really want to do well at this? Talk about private things only with the trusted few people. In Hebrews 13, let marriage be held honorable among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. This is a beautiful thing, but it can be made ugly. And one of the ways you protect that is you have a few trusted people that you can talk more candidly about this. And they're the kind of people that'll spur you on to right behaviors, to honoring your marriage and the commitment that you made. Number seven won't surprise you. Avoid sex outside of marriage. Though it's usually delayed, sexual sin will always bring pain into your life. Always. That's not God punishing you. It's the way the universe was meant to be. Your heart was meant to be connected to one person and one person only on all levels. Now, it can be connected to multiple people on other levels. You can have multiple friends. There can be different levels of commitment. But to experience all three of Ra'ah, Ahava, and Dod, it's meant to be only in the covenant of marriage. And that's why Paul writes to the same church that we've been reading about, flee sexual immorality. All the other sins a person commits is outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you've received from God. You're not your own. You're bought with the price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So a lot of us have benefited from the practice of saying, if we don't want to break our marriage vows, we're going to build guardrails long before we reach the cliff. So I don't meet alone with women. I don't ride alone in a car with a woman I'm not physically related to or married to. So that really limits the scope and On occasion, I've had women who were frustrated by that. And I appreciate the frustration, but my marriage commitment is more important to me than anybody else in this room. And it doesn't mean that everybody that would want to meet with me alone has some nefarious purpose. It just means that if I don't do it, I'm never going to break the vow. So how are you protecting the covenant of marriage? How are you avoiding sex outside of your marriage? And the number eight, I think if you really want the fire to roar in the fireplace, you have to, on occasion, break out of the rut. I wrote the phrase here, read the Old Testament book, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. 
in this book, Solomon woos the woman. He makes her earrings. <laughs> he literally buys her shoes. I mean, it's been going on for several thousand years. And he writes poetry to her. And you know what her response is at one point? She's like, you know, we're usually in the bedroom, but tonight I'd like to kind of go outside and see what we can do. And they're breaking the rut, and they're pushing the boundaries within the boundaries. And they're building the biggest and most awesome fire they can build together. And the last thing I wanted to do today was to put any sense of guilt or obligation on you, but I'd love for you to think deeply about what God would like for you to have heard today. And not, not your spouse. I mean, you can pray for them. Maybe you can talk about some of the things you've heard. Take your message notes, talk about them. But I wonder what God wanted you to hear today as it relates to this subject. Because he means for you to enjoy the life that he has given you. And if this subject has caused you pain, if you're single today, you should know you have our compassion, you have our friendship, you have our commitment to spur you on and to challenge you as well. But we need you, all of you that are single, helping us root for the marriages that are in this church. For as goes families, so goes a church, so goes a community. So what do you need to hear today? Why don't you grab out your connect card and let's take a couple steps together. <clears throat> I'm wondering if uh, perhaps you need to take next step A today, which says today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. Today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. If you've not yet given your life over to him, you should know that he is deeply committed to you. He gave his life. God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on a cross so that you and I could have life with him. And you can take your pen and check next step A and pray with me in a minute about giving your life over to Jesus. Or today I'm choosing to be baptized. I'm choosing to be baptized. We have a baptism, I believe, next week. And uh, it's going to be amazing. There's several adults. This is kind of your last chance to be in for that baptism. And we'll answer your questions and get you signed up. Or next step C says, hey, sign me up for the group. And you found that group number right here inside the program called uh, Life at 4C. And you just transfer it over to next step C. And if you missed it today, you can go online and do that. All those groups are available online. Next step D says, send me the information for grow number three, developing your leadership, developing your leadership, which is happening on February 11th right here in this room. So this is your last chance to sign up in the room. You can go online if you want, but you can check the box and we'll send it to you right now. And the next step, he says, I'll read the Song of Solomon this week and I'm gonna ask God to help me model loving the way he has loved me, to model the way I love after the way he has loved me, all right? Would you set your connect uh, card down and at this point, this is where folks who call church home here at Four Corners prepare to give an offering back to make the ministry happen here. So we just concluded a major financial initiative here. You've done very, very well. We were doing our Christmas offering. We set a goal of $80,000 and we blew well past that. So we added new initiatives. So we closed out just under $105,000. It's really, really, really incredible what you've been able to do. That means our work in India is fully funded. Our work in Cuba is funded. 
Our work at the Hamilton Mission is funded. Initiatives at the church are funded. Our partnership with Seven Oaks is funded. And we're almost completely funded with our work with starting a special needs ministry as well as increasing the security and safety of this place because you were generous. I know for a lot of you, God was very good to you in 2017. You were very blessed. If that's you, and you want to think about how it is you can get back to his work, today would be a good day to do that. Or you can think more deeply about it and do it later. Jill and I are anticipating get a little bit of money back from our taxes. And we're looking and praying about, God, how would you like us to both enjoy that as a family and give a little bit back to you and the work you're doing in the world? Apart from all that, I wanted you to hear me say as your pastor, thank you for your generosity. So let's bow our heads. Let's pray about our steps and our offering. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our lives. God, I want to thank you that physical intimacy was your design, was your gift to us. Lord, my heart breaks for the men and women in this room where even talking about this subject is painful. It brings up more stress. I pray, God, that you would just uh, give us a bigger vision of your heart on this subject. That you would restore and heal and make whole what's been broken. You would rekindle and reunite romantic love in marriages. You would help others understand the preciousness and the, and the logic in your love behind your prohibitions and boundaries around this subject. And we would all grow, God, to experience all that you have for us. I pray for those men and women right now who are saying, Jesus, wash away my sins. Cover me by your shed blood. I want to follow you with my life. And I lift up to you this offering today, Lord. Take it, make it go far and wide. Help us to continue to invest deeply in lives just like we did yesterday. 70 people investing in their marriage just like we did with the Hamilton mission. More people being fed. We promise, Lord, that we'll give you the glory. We don't want any for ourselves. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.